Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The ring that Tolkien writes about is a symbol. It's a symbol not just of power, but the way power works in the world. The rings are forged as gifts, but gifts that are meant to rule over the people who receive them and accept them. This is how princes rule. Princes rule not just by conquest, not just by power, but by the distribution of good things, by giving gifts to their followers. And when you take the gift, you accept the rule. When you take the gift, you accept the rule. This is the way the ring works in the Lord of the Rings, and this is the way gifts work in the world that we live in. The world offers gifts to us, good, desirable things, things that we long for and lust for. The world offers them to us, and if we accept the gift, we accept the rule. Remember last week, we looked at Genesis 4-7, where God, in speaking to Cain, said, sin Sin's desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. There's a, a struggle between ourselves and our sin, a constant battle. That struggle, sin desires to rule over us. The world desires to rule us. And so it offers us gifts. The gifts it offers are good gifts. The world offers to us ecstasy. It offers fulfillment. It offers security and respect. The world holds out to us fame. The world offers to give us love. From the point of view of the prince who wants to rule the best kind of gift to give is the kind of gift you only need to promise and not deliver. Because the gift is so good. It is so desirable that simply promising it is enough to get the submission of those who follow you. If I offer you love, a love like you've never experienced before, even if I never give it to you, the hope that you may one day have it leads you to jump through every hoop, to submit to every command. It's the power of the, the desire we have for these gifts Ecstasy, fulfillment, security, respect, fame, love. What wouldn't we do to have these things? I mean, who wouldn't you serve in order to have those things? The temptation is powerful. Temptation is powerful. If you want to understand what faithfulness is, so we've been working through Hebrews 11 this this uh, roster of the heroes of the faith, if you want to understand what faith is and what sets the faithful apart, it's simply this, that when they look at the gifts being offered by the world, they say no. They don't accept what the world is offering. That's faithfulness. Why not? Why don't the faithful accept the good things on offer? Well, the faithful know that what they really long for, they can't have in this life. 
What they really long for isn't available in this world. The world can't promise it. The faithful know that those who promise us these things in this world can't deliver them. They don't have them. The faithful know, too, that the desires we feel, the very longings that we feel, those are shadows. Those are copies of a higher reality. You think that the love you long for in this life is the love that will satisfy you. It is a shadow of the real love that will satisfy. The faithful realize this and they live accordingly. That's what it is to live a life of faith. To turn down the offers the world makes to you of satisfaction. Not to accept the gifts that are on offer. Not because they don't seem good, but because they're not real. Because what's offered won't actually be delivered. So if you look at Hebrews 11, and you see this catalog of people of faith. Again, last week we looked at the first section And now we'll look at the second section, the second catalog, where the narrative resumes. We ended with Abraham. We'll pick back up with Abraham once again and keep going forward. And many different people in the history of Israel will be introduced to us. In fact, we'll get so many of them that the author's going to just kind of run out of time and just start throwing out names at the end. But as you chronicle that history and you work through that history and you ask yourself, what do all these people have in common? What is the thing that that unites them? What unites them is an attitude about the world. A willingness to forego what the world offers in favor of something else. You'll notice some similarities as we look at Hebrews 11. uh, Starting in verse 17 and working all the way through verse 31, there's some similarities to the earlier list that we looked at last time. It begins with a sacrifice. You remember Abel's sacrifice began the list last time. This time, we'll look at Abraham's sacrifice. And sacrifice will come up again in the example of Moses when we get to Moses in this list. Uh, Like last time, we'll also end with the faith of a woman. Last time, after all of these patriarchs were ticked off, we got the faith of Sarah. And now, after a few more patriarchs get ticked off, we're going to get the faith of Rahab and the city of Jericho. You see some similarities to this structure. And I'll be honest with you. You could take a lot of time to work through each story. Each one of these verses, each one of these sort of passing mentions refers back to Old Testament stories that are are deep and rich in significance. And so we could work for weeks in going through this list. We're not going to do that partly because I think to do that misses the reason why these examples are being stacked up on top of each other. This is is a, a weight that's meant to grow and to grow as one example after another is laid on top of it. We're meant to see there's a kind of weight of witness bearing that takes place here. If you feel overwhelmed, you're meant to. This is meant to overwhelm you. These examples of faith, this through line of faith that the great Father Abraham was a man of faith. That Moses was a man of faith. We're meant to see these things and see that they were surrounded by faith. So let's look at the text. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17. And we'll read through 
all the way to verse 31 for now. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We'll pause there for a moment. You see many different stories, many different lives. But what we're seeing here are moments in those lives, examples of faithfulness in a lineage, in a history of people who at the time were thought of as as heroes of a different way of salvation. But the Old Testament history, that lineage, that genealogy, was a genealogy of faithfulness. If you ask yourself what all these heroes, from, from Abraham to Rahab, have in common, it's that the faithful sacrifice the rewards of this world for the rewards of the world to come. The faithful sacrifice the rewards of this world in favor of the world to come. They see the world and what it offers very differently. And as they're held up to us as examples, they show us a different way of seeing the world and what the world offers. They speak to us and instruct us in how to be faithful. They say to us, like Abraham, be willing to sacrifice what you've been given. Abraham inherits the promise. He's told it is through Isaac that this promise will be fulfilled. And then God says, Isaac, the one I've given you, that unlikely son through whom the promise will be fulfilled, I'd like you to take him and sacrifice him. Abraham does it. Uh, At the beginning of his book, Fear and Trembling, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, goes through a series of hypothetical situations. He's trying to understand the mind of Abraham. Like what motivated Abraham in that moment? How is it possible for Abraham to take his son Isaac and and sacrifice him? And he comes up with all these different ways that that Abraham could have seen it. But what the author of Hebrews gives us is one more fantastic than anything Kierkegaard imagines. He says the reason why Abraham was quick to obey, why Abraham was willing 
to sacrifice his son Isaac was he believed in the promise so much that he believed that if he killed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead and fulfill his promise. He was willing to sacrifice what he'd been given by God, as precious as it was, he was willing to give it up. That's how great his confidence in the world to come was. Like Abraham, be willing to sacrifice what you've given up. Like Isaac and Jacob, pass down the promise that you've inherited to your children. Pass it down even though you haven't seen its fulfillment. They bless their children based on the promise given to Abraham generation after generation. It hadn't come to pass. And yet, they saw those children as inheritors of the promise. They passed it down to them. Like Joseph, trust that the deliverance will come even if you're dead. Joseph, after generations of inheriting this promise, these blessings, finds himself and his people in Egypt. And when he dies in what's about to become this terrible captivity, he gives instructions what to do with his bones when you go home. He trusted that they would be in the promised land that God had given to them. And Moses' parents... Moses' parents, be like them. When they saw the beauty of the gift that God had given to them, the beauty of this child, the fear of kings was not enough to, to stop them. They defied the edict of the powerful king, Pharaoh, and instead preserved the beautiful son that they'd been given by God. Let the beauty of God's gifts Overcome your fear of earthly power. And like Moses himself, who could have enjoyed all the gifts that Pharaoh had to give, if you want to be like Moses, then choose to suffer with God's people instead of enjoying the celebrity and the fame and the power. Moses had all of those things, but he would have rather suffered with God's people than to enjoy all the benefits of Egypt. The, the, the contempt that was his in Christ, he welcomed it rather than accepting the gifts of this world. Moses, too, didn't fear the anger of the king because his eyes were on the unseen, the invisible king of all creation. The king he glimpsed in the burning bush. That was the king he feared. If you want to be like Moses, then fear the unseen God over all other powers. And trust your children to the blood of the sacrifice. Like Moses, at the Passover, is showing faith when he makes the sacrifice and, and he wipes the blood on the lentil. He's believing that the destroyer will pass over the firstborn. That's an act of faith. If you want to be faithful, then like the people of Israel, when God parts the waters... Walk through. And when there are strongholds that God intends to pull down, march around them and blow your horns until they come tumbling down. These were all acts of faith. And Rahab, who wasn't one of the people of Israel, wasn't seemingly one of the inheritors of this promise, was on the other side of the walls. She actually receives the spies into her home and she hides them and she does so while confessing her faith that, that the God of Israel is the God of all reality. She's willing to turn her back on kindred and tribe 
on nationality, on all the loyalties that would have bound her to this world, when she sees that the God of Israel is the true God, she decides He's the one I will follow. In that simple act of giving shelter to His messengers, she shows her faith. All of these people in different ways show their faith by showing their disregard for the rewards of this world. And they don't do it because they just don't care. They don't do it because they like suffering. They do it because, as we're told in the example of Moses, his eyes were fixed on a different reward. It's not that he didn't want to be fulfilled and happy, that he didn't want love in his life. It's that he wanted the fulfillment and the happiness and the love that he could only have in Christ. That's the example of faith that they give us. The world tempts the faithful. The world tempts the faithful in order to rule over them. And the interesting thing is, the world isn't worthy of them. As the genealogy continues, this is the point where the author of Hebrews, he hits the fast-forward button a little bit. He realizes, I'm, I'm trying to give you the history of the Old Testament, and we just got to Rahab at the beginning of the book of Judges. There's a lot of ground to cover. I'm running low on papyrus, so we've got to really kick this into gear. So resuming in verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Each one of those references is a reference to an Old Testament prophet or king or hero of some kind. It would be an interesting homework assignment for you to go through these and try to identify who is being referred to. It would be a good thing to do over lunch. Try to, to quiz one another and see if you can figure out uh, those who quench fire. That's pretty easy, but some of them are harder and and scholars argue over who is intended. This will test your Old Testament history. But there is one theme that comes through it all. They all suffer greatly. They're all humiliated. They're all brought low in the eyes of the world. From the perspective of the world, they seem to me the most they seem to be the most unworthy of people, the lowest. And yet it is the world that is unworthy of them. It's the world that is unworthy of them. And we hear the promises that are given to us and we put our hope in them. The world promises things. We hope that we could have those things. As a result of that hope, we actually sacrifice things that we shouldn't. We give up on things that we shouldn't give up on because we're chasing after 
that desire. We want to deserve what the world promises us. And so we sacrifice things that are precious, never realizing that the promises of this world are not only promises that can't fulfill, but they are promises that are beneath you. These promises, these offers the world makes to you should be contemptible in your eyes. They're a joke. They are unworthy of you. But the heroes of the faith that we've just read about, they made sacrifices. Don't get me wrong. They sacrificed a lot, but the things that they sacrificed were things that they counted less than what they stood to gain in the world to come. They didn't give up the good things in order to attain things that were unworthy. They gave up unworthy things, lesser things, in order to attain what was real. The world promises us fulfillment in this life, happiness, success, but the world isn't the only one making the promises. Perhaps the worst example of these false promises is when religion comes to us and makes the same kind of promises to us. You're not successful in life. You're not as wealthy or well-off as you'd like to be. You're not as fulfilled as you'd like to be. Embrace religion. Follow the rules of religion. Do these important religious things and you will find fulfillment in this life. You will find that the problems that oppress you will go away if only you embrace whatever religion is on offer. These are false promises too. The worst kind of false promises. If you look at the example of the heroes of faith that we've just seen, how many of these people were enjoying fulfillment and happiness in this life? No, they're being sawn in half, killed with swords. And if we call the faithful to live lives different than the lives that they live, you have to ask yourself, what is it that religion is offering to us? And I think all too often the tragedy is that religion, even Christianity, offers false promises. Instead of focusing on the promises that God makes of the life to come, instead, we present the church as if it is a kind of uh, spiritual self-development course. Right? That it's a sort of christened way of achieving your goals. So whatever kind of life you're trying to live, faith is a great way to enrich that life. To start having a sort of uh, more abundant existence in this world. But I hope you can see that part of faithfulness is recognizing that the abundance of this world isn't real. It's illusory. It goes away. It's empty. It's false. And it leads you to sacrifice things you should hold on to. It doesn't matter who's making the promises. It doesn't matter if the promises are being made uh, by a professor, by a politician, or by a pastor. When we start offering you the promises of the world cloaked in the guise of religion, we become false teachers. Because Christ does not promise you happiness today. What Christ promises, what you see in our text in verse 35, is to raise again to a better life. The hope is not to, to amend your ways now, to fix your life, to start living a, a more effective life. The hope is to die and live again, which is a much better thing. 
The hope is not to amend the ways of this world, get it working a little better. The hope is to change it entirely in Christ. We have a better hope. And all of these other promises are actually beneath us. When you offer false gifts to the faithful, that's an insult. I mean, the promise of health and wealth isn't just an empty promise. It's an insulting one. It's unworthy of you. It's unworthy of you. Don't settle for this world's promises of liberty and licentiousness, but don't settle for its legalism either. You deserve better than that. You deserve better than that. The thing is, one of the downsides of holding up good examples to follow, one of the, the disadvantages of saying, oh, look at all these heroes of the faith, you should emulate them, is that you quickly realize you don't measure up. Right? You come along and say, hey, you should be like Abraham. You know, you should be a little bit more like Moses. It's like saying, try to be like Jesus all the time. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea, but uh, I kind of fall a little short. And I'm painfully aware of it. So giving good examples can really backfire, right? Because it kind of makes us think that, that what's expected of us is actually impossible, which is true. In our own power, it is impossible. But it's not just true for us. It's true for them, too. Remember, these heroes, these examples, they're heroes of faith. They're not being held up to us as people who are exemplary, as people who are fantastic, the most gifted People who, whose sort of gift of faith was so amazing. Instead, they were objects. They were recipients of grace. The faithfulness that they showed is like the faithfulness that we show when we receive grace from him. The faithful, the heroes of the faith are not our betters. They are not our betters. They are our fellow heirs. If we are in Christ, then the name at the end of the list of heroes is ours. And listen to how this ends. This chapter has, to me, an unexpected ending because it's heaping praise on these heroes of the past. It's showing like they were so worthy. I mean, the world itself was not worthy of them. These people were better than the world that they lived in. And yet, there's a turn at the very end of our passage. Verse 39, it says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Father Abraham could not be made perfect apart from you. Moses could not inherit the kingdom apart from you which should give you goosebumps or fill you with fear or at least incomprehension at the ways of God. The people about whom so much of Scripture was written, the people who penned it themselves, could not be saved apart from us. Like what was promised to them was withheld from them so that we too might inherit that promise. That's the work Jesus does. Like all these heroes, they looked forward to the promise of Jesus 
That's what that faith was. They couldn't have explained it to you. They couldn't have given you all the details. It had not all been fully revealed to them. But, but the essence of their hope was the hope in Christ to come. And he has come. Now we see the thing that for them was unseen. Like we can name the Savior that for them was unnamed. That's the gift that we have. And yet, of course, like them, we too look forward to the fulfillment of, of the wholeness of that promise, Christ come again. The history of faith and sacrifice in Hebrews 11 isn't the history of Abraham and Moses. is isn't the history of Abel. It's not the history of Sarah and Rahab. It's the history of Jesus. The work Jesus Christ has been doing since the foundation of the world. You want to talk about how the faithful live in the world? Look at Jesus. Jesus turned his back on the rewards of this world for the sake of the world to come. When he was tempted, he just quoted Scripture back to Satan. There was nothing Satan could promise him that was of value to Jesus. The offers that were made were contemptible. Jesus knew they were unworthy. Jesus resisted the temptations of the world knowing that the world was unworthy. It's because of Jesus that the list of the faithful doesn't begin in the New Testament. but stretches back. And it's because of Jesus that the list of the faithful doesn't end in the Old Testament, but continues forward. And continues forward not just to like the days of Christ, but to today. And keeps going. When you read these words, when you look at our text, and you see this, this final sentence, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, realize that in this list of names that we've been rattling off, the, these heroic deeds of faithfulness in that list, we too are mentioned. We too are called to be faithful, to inherit alongside Abraham, alongside Moses, the promise of grace. What that means is that the example of these heroes of faith is not given to us to shame us. Their example isn't being set forth so that you can see how unfaithful you are in comparison. You just need to read a little bit more about their lives to recognize that compared to some of them, you're pretty good. It's not meant to shame you. It's meant to awaken you. It's meant to open your eyes to who you really are and to what you really deserve, what your reward truly is and where it is to be found. Let me end with these words of John Calvin's. What more could any of us desire than that in all the blessings which God bestowed on Abraham, Moses, David, and all the patriarchs, on the prophets and godly kings, he should have a regard for us so that we might be united together with them in the body of Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.